Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity that you've given us today to gather as the people of God to worship you, to lift our voices in praise, to pray together, to hear your word read and preached. Lord, to be able to come together around the table, to see one another and renew our friendships. And Lord, all these things are blessings that we do not deserve. So we do thank you for this new creation day. And we pray, Father, that we will continue to live with expectancy. And Lord, that our hearts even now will be expectant to hear the word of God spoken in ways that minister to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning. It is really wonderful to be with you this weekend. Uh, it has been a while. Uh, last year, I think your official visit from the bishop was from the assisting bishop of our diocese, Quig Lawrence. He is. Um, he and I work together. He and I work together to share the load of parish visits around our diocese. But he's a full-time pastor in Roanoke, so he only gets to go out about five weekends a year. I take over about 30 or 35 weekends to go visit parishes. But every year, Quig and I have an arm wrestling match over who gets to come to Incarnation. Uh, in 2017, my shoulder was hurt and he won. But 2018, I'm back in form. I'm here. All right, I'm great. <laughs> Just kidding. But not about the fact we both love to come, because we do. It is wonderful to be here. And um, so do our wives love to come here. Unfortunately, my wife Sally couldn't be here. She is teaching this weekend. Uh, she does a lot of teaching, but she's teaching this weekend at a training um, seminar for spiritual directors down in North Carolina, but she sends her love and prayers for you this morning. One of the reasons that it is a joy for me to be with you is that there is so much joy and hope in this congregation. It's, this congregation is full of vigor, uh, full of youthfulness, a uh, large percentage of young families and singles and all those JMU students and all that kind of stuff who come here, plus the fact some of you who are a little bit further down the road still have a big smile on your face. It's great to be here. Um, also, you live in a community with a legacy of generations from Mennonites, and I really do want to mention that because as I was thinking about that, I think one of the gifts that they've brought to us and to this place and to you in the long kind of deep roots of this place is an understanding of creation as a gift from God and a sense that we are called to be stewards of this gift. And there is therefore a stewardship of the land and a building of a society of justice that's really important. And then a rhythm of Sabbath that was built into it. And that's just such a, all those things are gifts that are rooted in the culture here. And so I see such a richness of creativity and a love of beauty whenever I come here. And add to that the gifts of a church that stands uncompromisingly for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And preaches the whole counsel of God tenaciously. And the results are a growing, creative, rich community of people who are eager to be the people of God within this world. And so it's really a joy to be here. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. I want to jump into the book of Hebrews with you and take kind of a brief stroll looking at it from a particular vantage point. So I, it would help you if you have a Bible to turn to that book, Hebrews chapter 1. If you don't, you can turn your phone on and turn to that book as long as your phone has that little dinger thing off. The broad context behind the book of Hebrews is that it is written to Christians who are primarily converts from Judaism. 
And they were suffering persecution. Now, the persecution had not gotten to the point of physical violence or injury or death. But it was really stepping up. They were being ostracized and ridiculed. They were experiencing social rejection, animosity, accusation. Things were being said about them that were pretty dangerous, pretty on the edge. And this was a new experience. As Jews, they had not dwelt there. Even though as Jews, they were sort of a strange and different minority, they had been a protected minority within society. But once they became followers of Jesus, they were displaced from that. And they were unprotected. And as a result of the persecution, there was a serious possibility that a significant number of people within the church that received this letter were considering literally walking away from their faith in Jesus Christ. And so this book is written to shore them up, to strengthen them, to refocus them on Jesus Christ and to call them back to their full faith in Jesus Christ. It was written by somebody who was intimately uh, acquainted with Judaism, certainly a Jewish convert, but probably even more than that. Somebody who'd been trained in rabbinic theology because this person knows uh, Jewish theology deeply and well. And now he saw Jesus and his death and resurrection as the fulfillment of the message that had been embedded in Judaism and to which Judaism had pointed and prepared. And Jesus clearly was the conclusion to which Judaism was headed. And so he's writing to remind them of that and to teach them about that and to cause them to remember Jesus. The context immediately is pain, the struggle of persecution. But the answer is look at Jesus, <laughs> okay? See Jesus. Consider Jesus. Again and again and again, consider Jesus. See Jesus. Come to Jesus. Look to Jesus in the context of pain. Now, the context of persecution, that kind of pain is not particularly our story. Maybe some levels of experience, but certainly not like they were at that time. But at the same time, we do all live in a world of pain and suffering. And inevitably, the pain and suffering becomes personal. It's not just sort of theoretical. And in fact, it's personal. The challenge is personal. It's challenging personally on a daily basis. And as hope-filled and as beautiful as this church is, and it is, I guess that probably none of you are under the illusion that life is easy. Uh, You know. I guarantee you that the most faith-filled Mennonite farmer in 1921 knew that the ground would yield its produce only through blood, sweat, and tears because this world is full of thorns and thistles. And he worked hard. And at the end of the year, if there was a harvest, he thanked God for the mercy of God and the protection from wind and hail and pestilence that he maybe had experienced that year because next year he didn't know. That Mennonite farmer's wife knew the heartache of burying her oldest son. He had not gone off to war in the Great War in 1921. But in 1919, he had caught the flu in the Great Epidemic. And he died. And so he laid in the ground, and she knew that pain. I guarantee you that the most hopeful JMU student in this room can read online news. And you know what 2018 has been like. You know the environmental disasters. You know the political scene that is shameful and nasty in our culture. 
You know the anger and the hatred and the division that we suffer, the random violence, the mass murders, that we just get exhausted by them. You know the ethnic violence and persecution on a worldwide scale. We long for a world of justice integrity, don't we? But no matter how advanced we are, technologically, medically, educationally, any other way you might talk about, justice and peace seem like a distant dream in our culture. It's very, very fragile. But all of that becomes not only just theoretical or out there, but personal when my sister gets killed in a car wreck. Or if I'm a young man and I'm struggling deeply against a draw to pornography, and I know that I shouldn't go there. The Hebrew, uh, author of Hebrews says something in chapter 2 that I find to be fascinating and actually quite encouraging. Verse 5, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It's been testified somewhere that what is man, that you're mindful of him, or the son of man, that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. This picture of humanity full of glory and honor, overseeing a world thriving under his care. Now in putting everything in subjection under him, he left nothing outside his control. But at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. You think? The picture of humanity in glory and honor, we don't see it. The picture of a world thriving under the care and the loving care of humanity that images God, we don't see it. We just don't see these things. It's not the world that we live in. But verse 9, we do see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. We don't see humanity in glory and honor, but we do see Jesus in glory and honor. We see who we will be in Christ. We see where we're headed. We see the new creation birthed in our world and in history through the resurrection of Jesus. And we begin to see and we can begin to hope what will be unfolded in the plan of God. We do see Jesus. And this is this first clear bell sound. We see Jesus. And the book just unfolds again and again. Look at Jesus. See Jesus. The entire book is an invitation to look and see Jesus as the, in, as the answer to the temptation to leave our faith, to flag in our hope, to just give it up. Whether we give it up in you know, real or not, but we just quit. It's seeing Jesus. As the exhortation unfolds, we are commanded to see or taught to see Jesus in two ways. We are to see him in his climactic finality. The finish, the goal, the ultimate. The answer to all redemptive history. Verse 1, chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Brothers and sisters, the book starts off just painting a glorious picture of Jesus, and the rest of the book unfolds that picture. And the author keeps saying, look at him, look at him, look at him, look at him, this is who he is. Look at him, this is who he is. He is the final word, the final step of the redemption of all creation. Look at Jesus and know who he is and what he's done. But then there's another way in which this book invites us to see Jesus. It also invites us and encourages us to see Jesus as our friend. As the one who can and will practically and personally help us on our road of faith through a world of pain. Let me say that again. To see Jesus as our friend, as the one who can and will help us practically and personally in our journey through a world of pain. And that's what I want to focus on for the rest of the time. How do we see Jesus? About a month ago in my personal devotions, I noticed something that I had never really put together in this book. And that's the phrase, the sufferings of Jesus, or Jesus suffered. And it shows up a number of times in this book. And every time it shows up, it says that Jesus suffered as a man in exactly the same ways I suffer and battle as a man. And it just almost lists them for me. And it tells me in each of those sufferings, in each of those battles, that Jesus understands me, has survived those sufferings, succeeded in those sufferings, and is present to help me as I face those same battles. We've already read in verse 9 that Jesus suffered death. And that's sort of the comprehensive header statement of the suffering of Jesus. It's kind of the final umbrella because all the sufferings are part of the suffering of death. And we'll come back and kind of end our conversation there. But in fact, suffering was a path that the Father laid out for Jesus in the whole process of becoming our Savior. Look at verse 10 of chapter 2. It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So the path of his saving us was the path of his suffering for us. And there's four steps on that path. Let me take them in order. Jesus suffered and endured temptation. Chapter 2, verse 18. For he, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus was tempted. In fact, he endured the greatest pressure of temptation than any human ever, being ever has, you know, for one simple reason, because he's the only human being who never gave in, right? He felt the full pressure because he never broke. And the result of that is that he can help us in our battles. Verse 17, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He suffered when tempted, and because of that, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Now, when I think about the path of pain, the path of difficulty, the path of suffering, the first thing I need to think about is my own struggle with sin, my own proclivity toward temptation. And I have been at this for a while, okay? I became a follower of Jesus when I was 13, really became a serious follower when I was 18, and that was in the past. 
I'm older than 18, in other words, okay? So I've been at it a while. And I still, pretty much on a daily basis, struggle against temptation. Am I the only one? It can be exhausting and discouraging. How many times do I have to face that one? How many times do I have to say no? How many times do I have to admit I blew it again to my kids or to my wife, to my friends? I lost my temper. I shaded the truth. I judged another person harshly. I long for deep and lasting transformation, to have different desires and inclinations so that I don't have to so consistently choose rather than want to do what's right. My wife tells me that my perspective is wrong, and in fact, I am a radically different man than I was 20 years ago or 30 years ago or five years ago or maybe even two years ago, and I really do hope she's right. <laughs> and in fact, I believe she is right. Because as I look at the life that God has led me down, certainly some of the more obvious observable sins and temptations have quietened down. They don't have the power that they used to have. And much of sin has lost its savor. It just doesn't taste that good anymore. And so I say that by way of hope for you because that's the work of God. That's not the work of Steve. That's the work of the Spirit. And so there is for you that prospect and that hope as you continue in your walk with Christ. And admittedly, I do deeply and more consistently perhaps than ever want intimacy with Jesus and conformity to, to Christ. And it's finding it a little bit easier to say no to occupying my time with three hours of internet surfing and instead maybe read something good and have a little prayer time and go to bed earlier. And those things so I can get up the next day and think. You know, those things are a little bit easier. But at the same time, the deep systemic issues of pride and anger and the desire to indulge the flesh in acceptable ways are still hanging around, folks. Did you know there's a difference between good flesh and bad flesh, by the way? You know, there's bad flesh that everybody knows is bad flesh. There's good flesh that seems to be acceptable in society, but it's still totally flesh. And you learn over time kind of what's the good flesh and how you can kind of indulge yourself and everybody thinks it's okay, but it's still the flesh. So I guess I'm just trying to tell you that the battles are real. And the promise of Hebrews 2.18 is that Jesus understands that. And that he knows the battles we face because they're the battles he faced. And he's ready to help me as a great high priest. And specifically, what does that mean? He will pray for me. He will encourage me. He will help me see and understand God and his will. He will help me see and understand why the will of God is good. Why it's desirable. He will assure me of his love. He will forgive me when I fail. That's pretty cool. It's pretty cool for me. And it suddenly makes the threat of temptation much less. In my 20s, and I want to tell you a story that's a little bit hard for me to say because it's not, and it's just not an easy story for me. But when I was in my 20s, I was going through about a three or four year period of extreme, intense, internal battle. I was really struggling with anxiety and, and some depression issues. And I was out for a jog one day, and the voice of the tempter came to me, and literally what I heard Satan tempt me and invite me to and solicit, fall down and worship me. And I was literally horrified. I thought, I mean, and there was this immediate prayer that just burst out of my mouth. How can a person be a Christian and even have that thought? And I cried out, God, help me. God, help me. I must not be a Christian. 
because I couldn't be a Christian if I had that thought. And without missing a beat, the answer came back into my mind. I was tempted to do the same thing. I was tempted to do the same thing. And it suddenly burst the bubble for me. It suddenly burst the bubble that there's anything that I could be tempted to do, because to me that was kind of like the ultimate. Anything I could be tempted to do that Jesus had not been tempted to do. And he had won. He had resisted. He stood there. And he said, I'm here to help you. I'm here to be with you. I'm standing with you, and I haven't walked off. So the first suffering that Jesus experienced was the suffering of temptation. And therefore, in our battle of pain, as we battle the temptations around us, he is a faithful and high priest to help us to endure without giving in. Second, chapter 5. Verse 7, Jesus suffered the limitations of humanity and the demands of submission and obedience. Chapter 5, verse 7, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became a source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, the immediate reference here is to the Garden of Gethsemane. But that was simply a final step of a lifelong journey of radical submission and obedience as a man. It was a climactic event. There was this garden in which there was a man who said, not my will, but thine be done. In contrast to an earlier garden where there was a man who said, not thy will, but mine be done. But that didn't happen in a vacuum. That happened after a life of obedience and submission, of seeking the will of the Father that Jesus walked. And it was his whole life. It's really hard for us to imagine Jesus was fully a man, which meant he was fully a child, fully a boy, and fully a teenager. He did not spring out of Mary's womb at 30 years old. He learned through the course of his life. He learned through a path of submission, trust, and obedience. He had consistent decisions to think and reason about what Scripture has to say. He had many times when he had to pray in order to discern the will of God. He learned in the context of worship and prayer. He was formed by prayer. Aubrey said this morning, was it this service or the first, about the Psalms? The first service. Okay, well, you should have been the first service. Anyway, so he was talking about the importance of the Psalms. Or maybe he'll come back and say that. Yeah, he's going to say that later on. I just said it for him. Jesus prayed the Psalms. And it formed him. Now, I'm not pretending that his learning curve was exactly like yours and mine because we're dealing constantly with malformation in our souls that he didn't have. But there was a process of true learning and growth. You remember Luke chapter 2. He went to the temple as a 12-year-old and it said that they marveled at his... You know what the next phrase, word is? Questions. His questions. And then it says he went home and he submitted to his parents. And he grew in wisdom and favor and stature with God and man. There was a process in which Jesus was being formed as a person following God. 
It goes all the way into his adulthood and his ministry. In John chapter 5, we read something like this. And I say something like this because this appears a lot in John. Truly I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees, present tense, the father doing, present tense. For whatever the father does, present tense, that the son does likewise, present tense. For the father loves the son, present tense, and shows him all that he himself is doing, present tense. The reason I'm saying that is because this was an active present tense thing that was going on. This was not just some reading of something that he remembered from the past. So the fact that you and I live in a world that's challenging where we constantly need to understand the will of God and we're not clear on that, we're, un- we're confused. How do we treat our children? How do we treat one child who's acting out a certain way on behalf of the rest of the kids who have different needs and so on? What is our wisdom as we go through that? What is our wisdom in terms of how do we face natural disasters? Sally and I have a house on the coast of North Carolina. Guess what? Hurricane Florence hit us harder than it did our neighbors who don't know Jesus. And I can't blame Jesus for that. It's the natural course of our humanity. Do you understand me? How do I act? How do I respond? What do I do? What kind of, how, how do I respond to it financially? How do I respond to it in terms of my time? I need the wisdom of God. I need to know the will of God. I need to understand how to live in this real world. Jesus did not live in a pristine antiseptic world. Palestine was poor. It was hard scrabble. There were food shortages. There were water shortages. There was poverty. There was illness. There was demonic activity. It was enemy-occupied territory. It was filled with political factions and camps, radically different answers for the ills of the world that battled for the support of the people. You think it's crazy in Washington? You should have been in Jerusalem. The Democrats, Republicans, and Libertarians have nothing on Jewish political arguments. I promise you. It was rife with people who raped the economy for their own personal gain. Remember Zacchaeus? It was a crossroads of immigration and ethnic tensions. Remember the Samaritan woman? I mean, it it, it was all the kind of stuff that we live in. What was God's wisdom? What's God's will in a thousand different settings? And again, that was the life and context in which Jesus the man lived in active prayer and seeking the will of God. Therefore, as we walk through and have our difficulties in understanding what God wants or how to live it out, Jesus is a faithful high priest. He's a faithful high priest because he suffered the limitations of humanity. That always amazes me. The Son of God, God, the second person of the Trinity, suffered the limitations of living a human life. Third, Jesus suffered the shame of rejection and ridicule and mockery and injustice. Turn over to chapter 12. This moves the conversation more into the realm of direct pain and suffering and attack. Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Here it is again, looking to Jesus. Consider Jesus. See Jesus who for the joy that was set before him endured, suffered the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There are few 
pains greater than shame. And all that it means. But as Jesus moved toward and through the cross, he suffered opposition, all consumed in that shaming rejection beyond anything we can fathom. In Luke, at the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says to the priests and the guards who come to address him, quote, this is your hour and the power of darkness. And the darkness unleashed its full force. So injustice, abandonment, betrayal, hatred, shame, rejection, pain, physical pain. Imagine your worst fears of exposure and rejection and shame and physical pain. Understand Jesus has been there. And therefore we can look to him because he endured it, because he saw beyond it. And he knew the end of the story. I have someone in my life that I'm close to that struggles profoundly with fears of abandonment and loneliness. And I have tried to reason him past his fears and it doesn't work. Increasingly, really the only thing that works is considering Jesus on Good Friday. So I'm talking to him just more and more about Jesus and not even trying to explain anything. I'm just kind of saying, look, just look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. And it's actually beginning to yield. Some of the, some of the angst is starting to yield, which I, I'm so grateful for. But I've reminded him of the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Talk about abandonment and loneliness. But that is followed closely by the remembrance that three days later Jesus was raised in victory and crowned in glory and honor. And whatever mysterious thing was happening there is Jesus as a man hung on the cross and experienced rejection by God and bore our sins upon his body on the cross, it was nevertheless soon afterwards swallowed up by the rejoicing in heaven as Jesus was welcomed home. Jesus suffered the shame of rejection and ridicule and a mockery of injustice, but it was not the final statement. It was not the end of his life. And we're called to reflect and ponder and understand that he's carved out a path of hope for us in whatever the most profound pain and anxiety you can imagine. Because our pain is not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. The entire book of 1 Peter says again and again and again, I know you studied it, is that suffering now will be replaced with glory in eternity. It says it a half a dozen times. The end of the story. The end of the story. Temptation limitation, shame, and all that it involves. And in the end, of course, Jesus suffered death. And the theme, in the sense of all these sufferings, is that they're different aspects of death. That's the ultimate suffering. And Jesus endured it all and endured the final enemy. And in the end, the darkness delivered its worst. And guess what? Jesus rose from the grave. It gave his, darkness gave its best shot. And I don't mean to say this disrespectfully, but I think Jesus kind of shook it off and said, got up and said, is that the best you can do? <laughs> we see Jesus alive, and now we know something, that there is no worse thing that can happen because the worst thing already happened and it didn't work. So whatever your fears are, and in fact, that's what happens in chapter 2, back in chapter 2, as he suffered death for us, back in verse 14 of chapter 2, it says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That's the devil. 
and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Dear brothers and sisters, I, I, I know that undoubtedly most of you, if not all of you who are followers of Jesus Christ, have settled the issue in your mind of the fact that death is not the final word. But I want you to know that Jesus did not come just to deliver you from the punishment for sin. In other words, death. He came to deliver you from sin. <laughs> to redeem you from sin. And the, in other words, the current struggle of dying. In other words, all these things are wrapped up in the fact that we live this life constantly running from death. <laughs> trying to escape it. And sometimes that turns so often into a drivenness and a determination to experience things and embrace things and to chase things, and it's exhausting. And he's just saying, don't, you, you, chill, relax. Right. Let, me, let me suggest a simple exercise. And this is pretty convicting to me, but I think it's, it's helpful. I encourage you to evaluate your own soul and your ambitions and your actions around a question. Am I following the Lord in my choices and commitments or am I simply running away from the fear of dying, the fear of death? Am I running from something or am I following something? Because if you're running from something, eventually you're going to find out that you're running from death. But if you're following Jesus, you're moving toward life. And he wants you to follow not to run. And the difference in that will be measured probably in the level of joy versus exhaustion, the level of fulfillment versus the level of emptiness. Because when we're running from something, we'll never get away from it. It just doesn't satisfy. But when we're following Jesus, we're alive. Jesus suffered death and he destroyed its power so that now he can and he will deliver us not only from death, but all manifestations of the fear of death. In the gospel reading today, Jesus came in to his disciples in the upper room after the resurrection and he had a word. What was his word? Peace. 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 Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Peace be with you in your battle with temptation. Peace be with you in your struggle to forge a life in the context of all sorts of craziness and pressure. Peace be with you in the experience of rejection, the loneliness, the anxiety, the fear, the shame. Peace be with you. Peace be with you in your death. At the end of the day, a life of following Jesus is not about pain or not about ultimately about wrath or not ultimately about judgment. It's about mercy. In the text from Hebrews chapter 12, as we end, we are told, come to Jesus. You've not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and a sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, 
to innumerable angels in festival, festival gathering. You've come to a party. You're welcome to a party. You've come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. They made it. They made it. You come to judge God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and you've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This book tells us as we walk through a life of pain and challenge and difficulty in any form that it takes, in any form that it takes, and I can't even begin to think that I've touched on even, even close to the things that you're experiencing, but in any form it takes, there's one answer, come to Jesus actively, presently, personally today.